story of Jacob. His name means uh, supplanter or heel grabber. Another way to translate that would to be cheat. Jacob is a cheat, a deceiver. Names mattered a lot back in that culture. Uh, I think Josh talked about that earlier. Um, so it says something about him that his name is cheat or deceiver. And James actually comes from the same root as Jacob. So I guess, I guess you could call me cheat and you would not be wrong. Uh, yeah. But Jacob, he, he consistently lives up to his name, right? So we see uh, Jacob's interaction with Esau and with Isaac. He cheats his older twin brother out of what should have been his brother's, out of his brother's birthright, out of his brother's blessing. And where we're going to pick up the story, Jacob is fleeing to a far-off country to the east of where he is, fleeing from his angry brother, which I would be angry if I was his brother. And also, he's sent... He's kind of two, two purposes to his mission. He's sent by his father, Isaac, to go find a wife in Paddan Aram, this far-off east country where their family lives. And as Jacob is on this long journey, last week we saw that God meets him. Remember that God initiates. God meets Jacob, and he makes promises to Jacob. He begins a relationship with Jacob, he gives him the same promises that, uh, that God had given to Isaac, Jacob's father, and Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, promises of land, promises of blessing and offspring, and lastly, God's promise of his presence with them. And despite all of those promises, you'd think that now Jacob should get it. Then Jacob's relationship with the Lord's been established, things are going to be good, but right away, um, we're going to be in Genesis 29. I'm just going to explain the first part of this. We don't have time to read through every word of Genesis 29. Uh, in the first part of the chapter, Jacob embarks on his journey, leaving that place where God had met him. He bark, embarks on that journey as if the Lord isn't with him. There's these incredible parallels between this story and an earlier story in Genesis where Abraham sends his servant to the same land, the same far-off land of the same family to find a wife for his son Isaac. And if you remember that story, the servant's journey is bathed in prayer. He's constantly praying. He's constantly depending on the Lord. When he finds Rebekah, he worships the Lord. His, his journey is just full of language of the Lord, of the Lord. And as you're reading Genesis 29, there's one thing that's really obviously missing. God, God is never mentioned in the first 30 verses of Genesis 29. There's not a single mention of the name of the Lord. Jacob goes on this, on this trip, on this journey, without the name of the Lord on his lips. So, well, we've seen that Jacob has a relationship with the Lord. It's been established because God's the one that establishes the relationship with Jacob. Even though that relationship is there, is true, God has a lot of transforming and sanctifying work to do in the life of Jacob by his grace. So let's look at Genesis 29. Uh, right now we're going to read verses 9 through 30, and then we'll pick up uh, verse 31 in just a little bit. This is page 23 in your pew Bibles, so starting in verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman. 
and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us in your word. We praise you that throughout all of your scriptures, Old and New Testament, you speak to us the gospel. You show us your grace. You show us your son, Jesus. And we ask again that you would speak to us this morning in Genesis 29 and 30. By your spirit, give us ears to hear your voice and give us eyes to see the glories of the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I remember growing up that I never understood soap operas. And I don't, I don't really get them uh, now, but I really didn't get them when I was younger. Every once in a while when I was in high school or something like that, I'd be flipping through the channels, you know, and you'd, and you'd flip to that one channel that had a soap opera going on. And maybe you can relate with, uh, relate with me on this, but uh, soap operas always stressed me out. Like just big time. I was so stressed. There was always someone in the hospital there's always someone dying. There was, there was always people just randomly fighting over just the craziest stuff. There are these relationships that aren't working out. There's love triangles, just ridiculousness constantly going on, let alone that there's bad acting. And Sorry, am I allowed to say that? There's bad acting and the story writing seems to be really, really cheesy. But the story that we looked at this week in Genesis 29, in a lot of ways, is kind of like a soap opera. I mean, there's love, deception, rivalry. I mean, it's, it's all there. And we have Jacob, Laban, Leah, Rachel, and all of these people are contributing to this mess. They're all contributing in their different ways to what goes down. 
And as we look at this passage and we see this mess, and we see God working his purposes of grace through the middle of this mess, I feel like I need to, to say something at the very beginning, some, to preface this whole, uh, this whole message, uh, how, reminding us kind of how, how to deal with passages like this. How do we deal with a passage where we see uh, the ruin that people's sin brings and we see the sovereignty of God working through the middle of that? How do we reconcile those two things? And I just want to say that uh, because we see terrible things in this passage, we see deceit, hatred, we see Jacob marrying four women by the end of, of uh, Genesis 30, and that is, just brings a massive mess. Uh, we see all of these different things happening. list goes on and on of all of the mistakes that are going on here. Um, we need to know that because, just because that's in the Bible and just because God is using that for his purposes doesn't mean that God is condoning those sinful actions. I think we need to be really careful. Just because God is using something for his purposes of grace doesn't mean that that's an okay thing. So if you feel really uncomfortable in parts of this passage, you just say, I cannot believe that they would do that. Just know that God would be saying the exact same thing. That's, that's terrible. They should not do that. But God in his grace works good through it. And it's really great that we have a God that does that, a God that is absolutely sovereign over his world and is working good purposes despite the fact that we are constantly messing things up. Right? Is that good news? That's, that's really good news for us. So keep that in mind through this passage. And as we uh, keep that in mind, we'll come to our first point, uh, which is God's, if you need to write this down, God's transforming grace gives us an honest look in the mirror. And if uh, you want a really short title, something that will stick in your head, uh, you could call this point the grace of a mirror, if you really want that. So where we started reading, just a second, I need some water here. The joy of singing and then speaking. Um, so as we start this story in, in, uh, in verse 9 where we picked up, it's, we see that it starts as a beautiful love story. Like, it really is. It's just a beautiful love story. Jacob, he's standing at this well. You can imagine him out in the desert with these sheep. He's standing at this well with these shepherds, and Rachel walks up with her father's sheep, and Jacob sees her, this stunning shepherdess, walk up. You know, and I'm not joking. I'm not like trying to add shock factor or make this passage more risque when I say that Rachel was gorgeous, that she was stunningly beautiful. I think the author is trying to make that really, really clear. In verse 17, it says that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And the ESV translate that's really, really nice, like really nice language. But he's saying Rachel's beautiful. She's very beautiful. And Rachel, and Jacob sees Rachel and he loves her. Now, also in verse 17, we see that there's this comparison between Rachel and her sister. See that Leah's eyes were weak. And it doesn't mean like she had bad eyesight, like she needed glasses or like LASIK surgery or something. Uh, It's talking about her looks. It's saying, Rachel's gorgeous. Rachel's this younger sister that's beautiful. But Leah, you know, Leah's Leah. Like she's, she's not as good looking as her little sister, right? So Jacob sees this gorgeous sister. We're going to get into, into the stuff with Rachel and Leah in a little bit. But Jacob sees this beautiful younger sister, and he agrees to work seven years for Laban, for his uncle, for uh, uh, Rachel's hand in marriage. Now, we have to see seven years isn't like a small price that he's paying for her. He's, this is like 
a very uh, exorbitant price. It's a huge price that he's paying for Rachel. So this is meant to show that he values her incredibly. Like he, he treasures her. He loves her. And he's willing to name a price to Laban that Laban can't refuse because he wants to marry Rachel that bad. He's willing to work seven years for her, right? And then verse 20, as we're reading, like this is something out of a classic romance novel. I mean, this is, this is gorgeous. I, I, love this, I love this verse, right? We, we should all love this verse. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I mean, wow, like love story here, romance. He sees her, he works seven years. I would be impatient. He works seven years for Rachel, and he says, that was just like a day. It just went, just went right by. I love Rachel so much. And if only it ended there, right? Like, this is the happily ever after moment, right? He works the seven years. He gets his wife. Yay. Story over. But no, it doesn't end there. We pick up in verse 21. It picks up at the end of those seven years. And Jacob says to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. All right, Laban, time's done. I worked my seven years. Give me my wife. I want to get married. But what, what does Laban do? Laban, he, he gathers this feast. He gathers these people. He gets the marriage and wedding ceremony ready. But as he's doing that, he's also preparing to pull off a deception that would put Jacob the cheat to shame. He's pulling off the deception of the century here. Look at verse 23. But in the evening after the feast and celebration were done, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. And Jacob's none the wiser that this trick has been pulled off until the morning. He wakes up, he looks over, wait, who are you? What are you doing here? In the morning, behold, it was Leah. That's what verse 20, 25 says. The deception has been pulled off. And you, you might wonder, how on earth do you do this? Like, how does Laban swap in Leah in the place of Rachel? And I think there's a lot of different things that might be in play here. The text doesn't say, like, it's definitely this one thing. Um, first off, although they're, they're different, sisters, sisters can look similar. So they might have looked like sisters, even though Rachel was gorgeous and, and Leah uh, didn't look like her sister um, in that way. Uh, but also, if you look back to wedding ceremonies, Leah would have been heavily veiled during the entire thing. Jacob would not have been able to tell who she was through this entire feast. And by the time that Jacob, uh, sorry, Laban gives uh, Leah to Jacob, it would have been dark. And remember, 4,000 years ago, they didn't have electric lights, right? So it's, it, they're in the desert, and it's dark. And he gives, gives Jacob Leah, and J- Leah, um, Jacob doesn't recognize her, doesn't see her. And uh, at the end of a long wedding feast, when we see wedding feasts in the Bible, we know what happens in wedding feasts. Let's just say that there may have been some other sort of substance that was slowing Jacob's mind a little bit, uh, making him not as wise, not as uh, able to notice those differences. But again, like those are only things that we can kind of speculate. Scholars can speculate when they look back at wedding ceremonies. Um, But in the end, we know uh, not how it worked out, but we know that it worked out, that Jacob was thoroughly tricked. And we see him wake up in the morning, right? And I would be angry. He was super angry. He rushes to Laban. What's this you have done to me? They did not serve with you for Rachel. Why then have you deceived me? 
So again, it's Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the cheat, getting beaten at his own game. You can even say, I've heard it said, Jacob gets Jacobed here. Jacob gets Jacobed, right? And I think this is just really interesting that Jacob, uh, his second deception was of his blind father. He uses his blind father, uh, his, his inability to see, to trick him into thinking that he was Esau. And here, it's Jacob's lack of ability to see. Jacob gets tricked at night. It's his eyes. It's his own blindness. He doesn't recognize Leah for who she is. He gets tricked kind of in the same way that he uh, had tricked his own father. So it's just getting thrown right back on, uh, on Jacob. But I don't, think he, I don't think he recognizes this right away. So if we're looking at the text, I don't think he, he gets it until Laban says in verse 24, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Literally, he's saying to Jacob, we, here, we don't put the younger before the older. If you know Jacob's story, why would that be significant to Jacob? Jacob's the younger who goes before the older, and Laban, I don't know if Laban probably didn't, know the significance of what he's saying to Jacob, but he, he says, we, we don't put the younger before the older here in terms of Rachel and Leah. And Jacob, I think in that moment, he, he gets it. In that, moment, he, in that moment, he sees what's going on. And I, and I think that we can see that because, I mean, what would you say? If I was Jacob, I would say, but you agreed. You know, you agreed to give me Rachel for seven years. You tricked me. He has all these arguments. He has a ton of good arguments he could raise against Laban, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't raise a single argument. He doesn't say a single word after Laban says the younger doesn't go before the older. Laban just names the terms. I'll give you uh, Rachel, but you have to work another seven years. And Jacob doesn't say anything. Jacob just does it. He knows that he's in the wrong. And I think what's going on here, we see it in Jacob, and we'll see this. This is something that God does with us as well. But God brings Jacob face to face with himself. This is where we see the grace of a mirror. It's like God is holding up a mirror in Laban and who Laban is to Jacob so that Jacob not only sees his own sin, but he gets to feel every bit the pain and destruction that his sin brings. He sees himself in Laban. Remember, God had already established this gracious relationship with Jacob, but here God is doing an incredible transforming, sanctifying work by his grace in Jacob through uh, Laban's deception. So have you ever noticed, um, I, I, I could probably think of a ton of examples and probably all of you could as well, have you ever noticed that it's often, um, often the sins of other people that bother us the most are the sins that we most struggle with? I know you've probably heard that a million times, but I think it's true Often the sins that we struggle with the most are the ones that we're most bothered by in other people. Um, when I was in high school, there was a time when I stepped down from leading music for our youth group. And there's a lot of different reasons that I did that. I stepped down from leading uh, worship. And I remember that for probably a semester or so in high school, I would go to youth group and I'd sit in the back and I would silently judge all of the students that were up front on the worship team. I would see them singing their songs and playing their guitars, and I would see in every single one of the things that they did this motive of pride. Oh, it's just all about them. They're just making this about them. 
and I hated it. It really bothered me. Like, I remember I'd always go to youth group, and I'd be like, ugh, you know, we have to sing again. I'm just going to have to sit here and watch all those terrible, prideful people up there. I didn't, wouldn't necessarily say that, but, but that's what was going on in my heart, and I didn't see it at the time, but what God was doing is he was showing me a picture of myself. Even if the people up front weren't being prideful, he was showing me when I go up, when I play that guitar for the youth, youth group music team, when I go up and play guitar and sing for church, like, am I thinking about myself? God was holding up a mirror in that worship team to show me something about myself, to show me my own pride. And I bet all of you could multiply stories with your siblings or with someone at work, whatever it is, uh, where, that, where that happens, where someone else's sin really helps you to see yourself. So how might God right now be holding up the mirror to you? How might he be showing you your own sin? And I don't want... I don't want you to miss that conviction over sin is God's grace. Conviction over our sin is, is it's God's grace at work in us. I don't think we recognize that often. I think God would be, he'd be withholding his grace from us if he just let us live in sin with no conviction. And God's, he's disciplining Jacob and he disciplines us when he shows us our sin, when he gives us a taste of our own sin. He does that painful work of rooting out, of pulling out our sin, of showing us ourselves, of transforming us. It's to make us more into the image of Christ. Hebrews 12, it speaks about discipline. I love this passage. In verses 5 through 11, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, but God, disciplines us for our good. It's his grace when he disciplines us. Why? That we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For in the moment, all discipline, it seems painful. In the moment when we're convicted of sin, it seems painful. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When God confronts you with your sin, when he holds up that mirror like he held that mirror up to Jacob, how do you respond? Do you see it as God's gracious work in you? Do you see it as God doing this because he loves you? He disciplines you and convicts you because he's your father? Because he loves you? There's a reason why every single week we confess our sins on Sunday. There's, there's a lot of reasons. We do it, it's not just because churches have done it for hundreds of years. We don't just do it because of tradition's sake. There's a purpose why we confess our sin every week. And one of them is that we need to build, as a church and individually, we need to build the habit of responding to our sin correctly. We need to know what to do when we see our sin, and we, we practice that. We run through our response to the gospel every week. 
we confess our sin, we look to the grace that we have in Christ, we turn to God's word for instruction and for guidance. We do that week in and week out because we know that we need to do that. We need to understand God's grace to us in the gospel by seeing our need for Christ constantly and knowing how to respond. And hopefully that's, that's a habit that gets built into you. That when you see your sin during the week, not just on Sunday mornings, that you, that you respond and, and you confess your sin. That you respond and you repent of your sin. That's what God wants us to do. And it's not just what we do on Sundays. It's something we should do every day. So we've looked at Jacob, but what about the other characters? As a, as a kid, I know I'm going back to my kid, kid days a lot, my childhood, but as a kid, I remember always feeling really bad for Jacob in this story. I looked back and I'm like, ah, oh, he gets tricked. The woman he loves, he doesn't get the woman that he loves right away. He, he gets to marry her after, after a week, after that wedding, but then he has to work another seven years. Poor, poor Jacob. Oh, Jacob, how, how, this is so bad for you. But I think if we're really honest when we're looking at the story, we shouldn't really feel all that bad for Jacob. Uh, if there's anybody that we should feel really bad for, it's Leah. Right? Right? It's Leah. I, I didn't notice this as a kid. Maybe it's because I'm a boy and I just needed to read this from someone else's perspective, but like, Leah's situation is terrible. I mean, she's the older sister, with weak eyes. She is the older sister whose beautiful younger sister gets all the attention from her father and from the men. She's the sister whose father has to use trickery to marry her off. Do you see that? He's getting rid of, his older, of, of the older daughter that he couldn't marry off. He, he, he tricks Jacob to get rid of her, right? And she's the, the sister that's unwanted by her husband. She's an unli- unloved and despised by her own sister. So can, can you imagine, imagine for a second, if you're married, maybe you can imagine the pain of this. If not, you could probably still get this. But if, if you wake up the morning after your wedding, you roll, roll over your bed and your spouse rolls over and looks at you and says, wait, what are you doing here? I don't want you. I married the wrong person. Could you imagine what that would feel like for Leah in that situation? We think about what's happening with Jacob. But on the morning after her wedding, her husband says, I don't want you. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's terrible, right? Jacob's being absolutely awful to her. And it's, it's not that Leah is completely innocent. Like, I think that she knew what her father was doing. Like, she participated in the tricking of Jacob. But nonetheless, Leah's situation, it's like unbelievably challenging. It's unbelievably hard. But we see that God is merciful and gracious to her, right? So let's look at God's gracious work in Leah. Our second main idea is this. Long version. God's transforming grace gives us dissatisfaction in things other than God. God's transforming grace gives us dissatisfaction in things other than God. Or if you want the shorter version, the grace of dissatisfaction. Simple enough? The grace of dissatisfaction. So look with me to verses 30 through 35. Now, I'll start in 30 and not 31. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, 
This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So there's, in this, there's, there's this beautiful, um, beautiful statement of God's grace to the hurting and, and unloved that he sees Leah, the language of he sees Leah. He sees that she's hated. He sees that she's unloved, that she's unwanted, and he has compassion on her. And how often are we the ones that cause pain for the unloved? How often are we the ones that are making people feel unloved? But throughout scripture, we see that God has a unique type of mercy and compassion for the hurting, for the powerless, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. And oh, that we would have that same sort of compassion when people are hurting. Just a little bit of a side note. And uh, if, if you are the hurting, if you are the unloved, if you feel unwanted, look to God who has grace on people that are unloved, those people that are hated. So what does the Lord do in his grace? He opens Leah's womb. She begins bearing sons. She has four sons here in this passage we're looking at. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then lastly Judah. And like with Jacob's name, their names are really important here. So if you miss Jacob's name, you kind of miss a lot of what's going on here. The same thing here. The names of her four sons tell Leah's story. So let's look at these sons in order. The first she has uh, is Reuben, which means see a son. And she has two reasons for naming him Reuben. The first is that the Lord has looked upon me in my affliction. God has, God has seen her, right? God's seen me see a son. But the, the underlying, the even deeper motivation in naming him Reuben is because she wants her husband to love her. She's saying to Jacob, see a son. I gave you a son, Jacob. Love me. Love me. Look what I've done for you. And then let's keep looking. The next she has is Simeon, which means heard. And again, it has this double meaning. The Lord has heard her, right? The Lord has heard her. But again, this focus is on her being hated by her husband. It's as if she's saying, I want Jacob to hear me. The Lord hears me. I want Jacob to hear me. The third son is Levi. It means attached. And here she doesn't even mention the Lord. In verse 34, she says, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And these, these sons, their names show us what Leah's really looking for, where she's really looking for love and fulfillment and satisfaction. She's, she's looking to Jacob. And the gifts of God's grace, these, these sons that God gives to Leah, are not a means for worship for her. They're a means for getting what she really wants, Jacob. The Lord isn't the desire of her heart. The Lord is the means of her getting the desire of her heart. You see that? And you may be saying, uh, James, this looks like a stretch. Like you're trying to pull something out of this text that's not actually there. Um, but I, I, I think that the birth of the fourth son in Judah is really going to make this clear. Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son. Everything's going the same as before. And said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Judah, the fourth son, his name means praise. Simply praise. Jacob has nothing to do with the naming of Judah. Leah's singular focus in the naming of Judah is on the Lord. And I think it's really intentional when you're reading verses 31 through 35 that one of these things is not like the other. You have four sons and one of these sons is not like the other. There's something different about Judah. I think God has continued to leave Leah dissatisfied until she was simply able to see God's gracious gift as a means and grounds for worship and not as a means for obtaining satisfaction somewhere else. 
And I want, I want you to know that if you look for satisfaction in places apart from the Lord, God is going to leave you dissatisfied. He's going to leave you dissatisfied, and that's his grace to you. Again, it's because God loves you that you're dissatisfied in things other than God. I think something that relates to this really easy picture of this would, in our culture would be our consumer culture, right? We always want that new phone. What is the recent one, the iPhone 7 or 8 or 10? 10? Okay, all right, iPhone 10. But we, we want the new phone. We want the new computer. We want that bigger house. We want those new clothes. We want to look good. We want this. We want that. For me, I want that new fishing pole. I want that new muscular, right? Like, we see the thing. Oh, I bought this, I bought this nice guitar. Oh, I want a nicer guitar. Like, we, it's crazy. Like, we get these things, and they almost instantly we're dissatisfied with the things that we have, right? They never, the, the, the bursts of satisfaction we get, it just never lasts. Like, we're really happy for a day or two. But it doesn't last. And we see this in so many things. We see it in relationship, sports, right? Like, I'll be happy if the Packers win today. Whatever. Um, employment, grades, money, approval, status, wealth, awards. I mean, what, whatever it is for you, I promise that that next thing is not going to fulfill that longing for you. It's not. It's not going to do that. It's not going to fix your problem of dissatisfaction. And, and again, I just... It's God's grace when we're convicted of sin, and it's God's grace when we're dissatisfied in things other than him. I think one last example I want to give of this that connects directly with this passage uh, is marriage. It's, It's not wrong for Leah to want Jacob to love her, and it's terribly wrong that Jacob doesn't love Leah, right? But Leah's still looking in the wrong place for ultimate satisfaction. Marriage, it's not meant to be our primary source of satisfaction. It's not. Leah and we need to see, that the un, see the unparalleled satisfaction of being loved by the Lord. It's about the Lord. We need to see that. And if you're married, you have to know, or you've already figured this out, that your spouse cannot take the place of the Lord in your life. It's tempting to take God's gifts and turn them into idols, even some of his most precious gifts. And if you're not married and you're sitting in here, I just want to strongly encourage you want to encourage you to look to the Lord for joy and satisfaction. And look to him not as a temporary fix that'll hold you over until you get what you really want when you get married. Don't look to God for satisfaction as a temporary fix for not being married. Because you're going to forever, whether you're married or not, you're forever going to need to find your satisfaction in God. Marriage is a wonderful gift from, the, gift from God, but it's not a replacement for God. I just needed to see that. And again, it's God's grace when we're dissatisfied, when we look for satisfaction apart from him. So we've seen sometimes God's transforming grace looks like a mirror. Sometimes it looks like dissatisfaction. And lastly, we're going to see the grace of humility. God's transforming grace shows us that our good qualities and efforts can't earn blessing. God's transforming grace shows us that our good qualities and efforts can't earn blessing. So you probably know where I'm going with this. Uh, I've looked at Jacob. We've looked at Leah. Now we're going to turn and we're going to look at Rachel for just a moment. It would seem that Rachel has everything going for her. Verse 30 says, Jacob loved Rachel and not Leah. But right away in Rachel's story, things take a turn for the worse. 
verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So all of a sudden you have this unloved sister that has children, and you have the loved, beautiful sister that has no children, right? So we have this, this, this comparison, and it's going to bring about this bitter rivalry between these sisters, and how couldn't it? Like, it's almost inevitable. It's kind of one of, one of uh, God's good pictures to us of why uh, he doesn't want us to marry multiple people. Um, this, is, this is just a terrible, terrible situation that goes down. And this is, a, this is a rivalry that would put Bears Packers to shame. It's a rivalry that would put Cubs Cardinals or what have you to shame. They have nothing on this. So let me just read for us quick uh, Genesis 31 through 8. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that I may have children through her. So she gave to him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So right away in verses 1 and 2, we see that this barrenness of Rachel's driving a wedge between Jacob, uh, between Jacob and Rachel, between them in their marriage. And so what Rachel does is she turns to the same strategy that Abraham and Sarah turned to. Turned to. If you remember that story where uh, she gives Jacob her servant Bilhah as a wife um, to have sons through him. And she has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And, and this is not a good thing. This is a foolish human attempt to make God's blessings happen, to bring about God's blessings in our own way. And she thinks that she's beaten her sister, right? She's gotten a point in the rivalry. Um, she says in verse 8, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And if you know the rest of Jacob's story, what's going to happen in a couple of weeks, then you know the language of wrestling and prevailing is going to show up again. It's going to be pretty important. But I'll leave that for that passage. In verses 9 through 13, Leah tries the same strategy back at Rachel to get more sons. Leah gives Jacob her servant Zilpah, as a wife, she has two sons, Gad and Asher. So Leah, again, has scored a point and taken the lead in the sister rivalry. So what's, J- what's Rachel going to do now? It's like this bitter rivalry. They're just going back and forth. And Rachel's next attempt at beating her sister in this sister rivalry competition um, is perhaps one of the best uh, cases of irony in the entire Bible. God uses Rachel's attempt here. He, he humbles her. He empties of her pride and her attempts to get, bring God's blessing by our own strategies. I'm just going to read uh, Genesis 30, 14 through 24. This will be the last section that we look at. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, 
And God, God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have my servant, uh, I've gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. So one day, as they're out harvesting, Leah's oldest son, Reuben, brings these mandrakes. It's this root, the root of this plant. And it had, there's a superstitious belief that mandrakes would help you to have children. So Rachel sees Reuben walk in with these mandrakes. He says, I need to have those. I can't have kids myself. Maybe these will be the thing that fixes me. So she bargains with her sister. And it's kind of like Jacob bargaining with Esau earlier. But he bargains with her sister to get these mandrakes. And what does she trade? She trades a night with Jacob for these mandrakes. So she's resting and relying on this superstitious thing. Maybe these mandrakes will help me get one up on my sister. And in the trade, what happens? She loses out in two ways. Leah gets another son from the night that she traded. And Rachel gets absolutely nothing but useless mandrakes. So like, irony, right? There's irony here. She's trying all these different things and in her own attempts, she doesn't just not fix the issue. She makes it worse for herself. So Rachel, as we're looking at this, Rachel, she's the beautiful sister. She's the loved wife. And initially, she'd have every reason for pride. She'd have every reason to lord her status over her sister. But through her foolish and faithless attempts to get God's blessing, either by giving her servant to Jacob or by resting on superstition, we see that it just doesn't work, that God empties of her of her pride, her privilege, her self-sufficiency, and it's only after all of these things happen in verse 22 and 24 that God remembers Rachel and she has a child. So she doesn't get a child because she does any of these things. She gets a child despite these things because God remembers her. And that remember is the same language back in Noah, uh, the story of the flood with Noah, is God remembers Noah in the ark. He remembers him. It's God turning to Rachel here in grace. He turns to her in grace and she has a child. But it's not something that she does on her own. And God is humbling Rachel. I love Meredith Klein. He has a quote about this passage. I'm going to read this twice. Just please listen to this. The gift of new life was given not to Rachel, the beautiful favorite of her husband, but to Rachel, the barren, who turned to God out of her hopelessness. The gift of new life was given not to Rachel, the beautiful favorite of her husband, but to Rachel the barren, who turned to God out of her hopelessness. Not to Rachel the beautiful, Rachel the barren. It was God's grace to humble Rachel. It's God's grace to humble us, to remind us of how much we need him. We can't earn his blessing on our own. Do you know, and, do, and you probably know this, if you've come to church you know this, but do you, do you really know that God's grace is something you can't earn? You can't work for it. You can't scheme for it. You can't buy it. You can't bargain for it. You don't receive God's grace because you're beautiful. You don't receive God's grace because you're talented, because you're hardworking, because whatever good quality you have, you don't earn God's grace. Rachel doesn't earn God's grace here. Not one bit. And God is showing her that. Her efforts can't do it. God's grace is a free gift. God's grace is a free gift to us in Christ Received by faith. It's not something we work for. It's not something we bargain for. So in this passage, we've seen that sometimes God's transforming grace is a mirror. Sometimes God's transforming grace is dissatisfaction. And sometimes God's transforming grace is humility when he shows us that our efforts 
can't do anything, do anything to earn his blessing. But in the end, I think the big idea here is not just that uh, God gives his grace, uh, that God's grace works in us, broken, sinful people. Not just that God's grace works in us, but that God's grace works despite us. God's grace works despite sinful and broken people. Any Israelite who's reading this story, any Israelite reading this story would recognize immediately the long-term significance of what's happening here. In the middle of this bickering rivalry and this battle between sisters, these 11 sons mentioned here are 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel. The last one, Benjamin, he's going to be born later. But this is 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel born in the midst of people being people. People being sinful. But there's even more than that. The last son, Rachel's son, Joseph. You guys know the story of Joseph, right? Going down to Egypt. God uses Joseph in a really powerful way to save his people from famine. But it's not even Rachel's children. It's Leah. Remember the unloved sister? Her children are the ones that have the most lasting significance through the rest of the biblical storyline, the rest of the significance for us. Her third son, Levi. Through Levi comes the priests that were so integral in in the worship life of the people of Israel. But then it's the fourth son. I want you to look at this fourth son, Judah. Judah, born of a cheating younger brother and an unloved sister. Why don't you see that? Judah is the son of a cheating younger brother and the unloved sister. And Judah is the one who the, whom the promises of God for redemption of a sinful mankind is going to happen. Judah is in the line that David comes from, the line of the kings, and the line that the Christ comes from, the line that the Messiah comes from. Judah is the forefather of the Messiah that comes into a broken world, comes into a world where we try to earn God's love, a world where we scheme, a world where we're rivals, a world where God is gripping us with grace and he comes and shows us and gives us God's grace despite us. The son, the descendant of Joseph and Leah. Far in the future in that passage, we read uh, John 4 for a reason. Far in the future, that descendant of Jacob and Leah, that descendant of Judah, was going to walk up to a well near a field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And there we saw in our, Old, in our New Testament reading that Jesus would meet a broken and desperate woman who was on her own search for satisfaction. And we see Jesus come up to this woman at the well and he lovingly and he graciously shows her her sin. He gives her a painful look at her futile attempts to find satisfaction through many husbands, the many husbands she had had. And God graciously opens her eyes. He gives her a gift that she could never earn. Jesus gives her living water, living water that satisfies her deepest thirsts. Jesus gives her himself, right? Jesus gives her himself. How do you respond when God graciously holds up the mirror and shows you your sin? How do you respond when God graciously gives you dissatisfaction in things of the world? How do you respond when God empties you of your pride and shows you that you can never do anything to earn his blessing? God shows us how to respond. Jesus shows us how to respond. 
Look to Jesus. Trust in his death on the cross. Trust in his death on the cross to cleanse you from the sin that you see. Look to Jesus. Drink deeply, drink deeply of the living water that he gives you, the water that satisfies eternally. And look to Jesus. See the wonders of grace that you could never earn in a Savior that gives it to us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Look to Jesus. That's what this passage should make us do. It should fix our eyes, not on ourselves, even when we're showing our own sin. It should fix our eyes on something outside of ourselves, on a beautiful Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We know that we don't deserve it. We know that even we actively try to work against it, but you love us. You work your grace in us. You show us our sin. You convict, convict, convict us so that we would see our need for Jesus. You dissatisfy us in things of the world so we would see that we can only find satisfaction in Jesus. You empty us of all of our pride, all of our efforts, Father. We thank you for that work. We praise you. We ask that as we go forward this week that we would live in your presence, that we would see your gracious work, your gracious hand at work in our life every single day as you draw us to yourself, as you open our eyes to see the risen Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.